The AMA Moving Medicine podcast highlights innovation and emerging issues that impact physicians and patients today. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the AMA. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's Moving Medicine video and podcast. Today, we're joined by Todd Askew, the AMA Senior Vice President of Advocacy in Washington, D.C., who will give us an update on the AMA's latest advocacy efforts. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Uh, Todd, CMS has released the proposed rule for the 2022 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. Can you tell us more about that and what it means for physicians? Sure, Todd. This is an annual exercise. Uh, we go through a massive, a massive proposed rule, as it is every year, uh, that sets out the parameters for the Medicare program for participation by physicians, uh, payment rates, and other policies for uh, the coming the coming calendar year. Uh, this year's uh, proposal has weighed in at just over seventeen hundred pages, and so having just recently come out, our staff is is busy analyzing what CMS has put forth. Uh, one important thing to highlight, uh, which is unfortunate but not unexpected, was that payment rates or the conversion factor, as most physicians will understand it, uh, will be reduced uh, for 2022 by about 3.75%. Now, this is, uh, like I said, not unexpected. It's it's roughly the, the reduction of the increase that was uh, put in place last year to ameliorate the impact of some budget neutrality changes, um, uh, but it's still it's still gonna it's still gonna sting, and so uh, we're working uh, looking to work very hard on that. So why don't you just uh, talk a little bit more about AMA's position on this and uh, some of the advocacy efforts that are underway? Absolutely. So, I mean, it's clear with physician practices still you know feeling the impact of the reduction of of volume uh, during much of the pandemic that across the board 3.75% cut uh, is, is, is gonna hurt. It's not sustainable. And especially given the fact that so many other uh, payers will peg their rates to, uh, to Medicare rates. It's also not the only cut that we're likely to see. Uh, there's some statutory uh, things currently in law uh, that could also uh, further reduce payments. You'll recall uh, at the end of last year, we were able to delay for a year uh, the annual uh, sequester, which reduces all payments by by two percent, and so that is scheduled to come back into place, as well as a four percent cut uh, that reflects the impact of some of the spending uh, the federal government undertook to address uh, the the pandemic. Uh, it adds up. It adds up quickly to you know almost nine percent cuts or over nine percent cuts potential uh, for physician payments under the Medicare program. In addition to that. You know, there's also the potential for downside on some of the quality reporting programs uh, if those are not uh, delayed. So uh, we take all this very seriously, as everybody should, and we are working with across the Federation of Medicine, with state medical associations, and with uh, national specialties uh, to uh, convince Congress to uh, further delay or cancel uh, some of these or all of these um, payment decreases that, you know, could impact uh, positions in the coming year. Well, when you think about uh, all of your efforts and kind of this annual review and a lot of, you know, not good news, when you just kind of step back and take a look at the big picture, how do we create a payment system that works for physician and uh, for, for physicians and supports uh, efforts to provide quality care? Yeah, no, that's, that's very important, Todd. 
Um, uh, we've seen over the years, over the last dozen years, really, and really longer than that, uh, the Medicare payment system become more and more complicated beyond just the uh, payment cuts that we seem always to be having to fight off, uh, but the layering of regulation upon regulation of reporting requirements, uh, programs that are siloed, they don't make a lot of sense. You can't relate some of the, many of the quality reporting requirements to how it actually might benefit a patient care. Uh, so we, and many of the other groups in organized medicine have called on Congress to take a step back. We're doing the same thing uh, to reimagine what the payment system should look like uh, to better serve patients, uh, to be simpler, more understandable, less burdensome and more fair uh, for physicians as well. And so that starts, we've asked for oversight hearings. We've asked Congress to take a look at what has been heaped upon the Medicare payment system over the, over the last decade or so and, and start to think about what we would do if we could uh, begin again, if you will, if we could uh, come up with a payment system uh, as, we would, as we would design it without the weight of everything else uh, that's currently there. Are there any other kind of models that you're looking at or, or can reference for that? No, I think the main thing we're looking at is building backwards. What are the, what are the major problems uh, with the current system? And it's, it, it basically, in a lot of cases, is reporting for reporting's sake. It's data collection for the sake of having the data and not really being able to use that data to improve patient care. And so it just creates burdens. And so we need to get rid of those burdens and focus the payment system on, on what it should be doing. And that's helping physicians provide high quality care uh, to their patients. Well, in, in, uh, in that realm, you know, during the pandemic, uh, physicians were offered some flexibility uh, with the use of telehealth, which was an, sure. you know, incredibly important uh, uh, when we couldn't, you know, where patients couldn't be seen in the office. And that was a lifeline really for patients. What, you know, what was the most significant change that we saw in the telehealth space? Well, right during the pandemic, uh, patients needed care, uh, but for much, and you know, much of the care could be done uh, remotely, but it, it couldn't be done under Medicare rules. Uh, the Medicare uh, telehealth benefit was a very, very narrow benefit, uh, really only for patients in certain rural areas and, and under certain spe uh, specific conditions. And so uh, during the public health emergency, most of those uh, restrictions like the geographic and originating site restrictions have been lifted and it has really blossomed. And uh, physicians who had previously never uh, provided care through telehealth uh, and patients who had never taken advantage of it uh, were able to do so. And it was very popular. It really met an important need uh, uh, during, during that time. Medicine doesn't stand still. And at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. So, uh, you know, to that end, uh, the AMA is continuing efforts to extend those flexibilities around telehealth beyond the pandemic. Can you tell us more about what the advocacy team's work in this area looks like. Right, so uh, for example, just recently, more than 400 uh, prominent physician organizations, healthcare, technology groups, uh, a whole group of stakeholders came together uh, to urge Congress to continue to extend uh, these benefits, this flexibility that's been provided 
during the public health emergency beyond this period to so that we can really build and have a meaningful benefit permanently in the Medicare program for physicians to be able to provide these services to their patients uh, via these other modalities. Um, there have been some progress in the proposed rule for increasing uh, the accessibility of mental health services, which has been a key uh, a, a benefit that's been delivered uh, through telehealth. Um, but the biggest problem right now is the Congressional Budget Office. Quite frankly, they see it as an additional thing that beneficiaries will take advantage of in addition to, instead of in lieu of uh, in-person services. Uh, we don't believe that's entirely the case. We don't believe you're going to have a massive spike in volume uh, in addition to uh, the in-person visits. We believe patients will continue to choose in-person visits or the telehealth visit based on you know, the need and the service that needs to be done. So it's about data collection. It's about making our case. Uh, we are well underway in doing that and working to convince, among others, the Congressional Budget Office that uh, this is not going to cause a huge increase uh, in expenditures. Well, in addition to the advances in telehealth uh, and many other things we saw during the pandemic, one uh, important trend uh, was an increase in substance abuse. And a few weeks ago, the CDC came out with a report that showed an unprecedented 29% increase in overdose, overdose deaths last year. And that's you know, 93,000 deaths. Um, the AMA has been out there working to fight the national overdose epidemic for a number of years. But can you tell us uh, about some of the recent advocacy efforts? Sure. And this has really become, you know, this is kind of the story of the forgotten pandemic. You know, before COVID, uh, this was at the very forefront of our public health efforts. And it didn't just go away uh, during, uh, during this period. It actually has gotten worse. And some of the progress that had been made has, has we've kind of taken a step back because we have seen these uh, very large increases in, in overdose deaths. Uh, we've recently provided some commentary on some plans uh, from the ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Com Control Policy, made a long series of recommendations, uh, kind of, I, could, I would kind of bucket them into maybe three or four different buckets. Uh, one would be expanding access to evidence-based treatment uh, for everybody to make sure that we can get treatment services and harm reduction services to, to patients. Uh, another is uh, using the government's influence and control on all types of health insurance payers to get rid of arbitrary restrictions on access to some of these services that uh, may, you know, may otherwise apply uh, for, for one reason or another. And that includes access to opioid therapy for those patients who would benefit from opioid therapy, uh, as well as then disseminating best practices, continuing to make sure that we get the state of the art out to people uh, so that uh, they know the science and, and what treatment services are available. And, and then finally, uh, continuing to develop and support uh, standardized data reporting systems and, and metrics so that we have a clear and concise picture of the state of, uh, of the state of, um, uh, of the opioid crisis uh, that, that we have in this country. But, you know, unfortunately, it's not just one side of the, of the equation, there's two sides of the equation as well. And another area we've had to become engaged in recently, and actually it's, we've not been disengaged from it, but it is uh, moved up the ladder a little bit is the 2016 opioid prescribing guidelines uh, from the Centers for Disease Control. Um, 
the guidelines were well-intentioned, uh, giving physicians guidance on uh, appropriate opioid therapies for pain patients. Uh, but they've had the uh, negative, they've had the uh, kind of the negative implication of stigmatizing pain and, and making many pain patients, you know, feel as if uh, they're doing something wrong or uh, they're drug seekers when they have legitimate needs and, and giving a lot of physicians pause about the appropriateness of certain therapies. So these guidelines uh, were taken and rather than just be guidelines, I think you've had more than 35 states now uh, basically write them into law. Mm. And you've had pharmacies and health insurers take these guidelines uh, and make them absolute non-flexible policies uh, for their policyholders or their customers. And so you have patients who have a real legitimate unmet need uh, for pain control that are facing all these obstacles. And this really runs in the face of solving the, the pandemic of opioid abuse because in the last decade, we've seen a more than 40% decrease in opioid prescribing by physicians while we have seen the rates of opioid deaths uh, and overdoses continue to increase. And a lot of that is because the problem has shifted uh, to illegal fentanyl, uh, fentanyl analogs and other substances. Um, so focusing solely on prescribing is missing the mark on what is really driving the opioid crisis we have in this country. So it's not an easy problem. It, it's a huge thing that we may have forgotten about, not, not a lot of us, but the public may have forgotten about uh, during this crisis, but during the current um, COVID pandemic, but it is still there and it still needs all of our attention. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA recovery plan for America's physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. A lot, of, a lot of crises to contend with, and that right. one continuing to get worse during the pandemic. Well, last question for you. Uh, there was some news recently uh, from the Veterans Administration that proposed new standards uh, that many feel could unintentionally lead to patient safety concerns and lower quality of care. Can you give us some background on what that is? So the Veterans Administration has decided to basically establish national standards of care are for 48 different separate categories of healthcare professionals working uh, within the Veterans Administration, the VA system. And like, for example, they have one category for a physician, uh, despite the fact that there's more than 40 specialties, more than 80 subspecialties employed by the, the Veterans Administration or the, or the Veterans Health Administration. Um, it also treats different types of physicians uh, separately in their own silos as opposed to recognizing how care is really provided by teams of, of clinicians and other healthcare professionals, physicians and nurses and advanced practice nurses all working together uh, to, 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 uh, to uh, uh, provide the best care possible for, for our veterans. Um, and so it's, it's a bit baffling really 
what's what's going on here. Um, it's also confusing since there has really been very little transparency and very little stakeholder outreach or input into this process. It's been done very much, very quietly and internally. And the biggest implication, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, for, for patient safety, but part of that is because you will be superseding uh, state uh, and federal laws uh, that make it possible to discipline healthcare professionals uh, who may provide substandard care. So current state licensing authorities, for example, would be powerless over some of, the, over some of these professionals using these new national standards uh, for practice by the VA. And so uh, we are deeply engaged. There are a lot of, there's a lot of concern throughout the Federation of Medicine. Uh, we have been reaching out to the VA. We have had some interchange, but I believe just today, uh, a, a letter went to the VA calling for them to step back uh, with a lot of support from uh, medical specialties uh, saying that they need to take another look at this and withdraw what they have put forward and, and start again. Well, thanks so much, Todd. There never seems to be a shortage of critical, critical things true. to work on in the advocacy world. Uh, we appreciate your perspective and look forward to having you back soon uh, to talk again. Thanks again uh, for being with us uh, to all the viewers out there. Uh, that's the end of this Moving Medicine video and podcast. We'll be back with another segment shortly. You can join us for future episodes and podcasts of, of Moving Medicine by subscribing at ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Check it out uh, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. I'm Todd Unger, and this has been Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.